Okay, Dr. Phil, the first article that we're talking about today uh, says that there was an average of four suicide cases every day for the first three months of the year with 336 cases reported to police. This is a shocking statistic released by the health DG, Dr. Noor Hisham Abdullah, who said the number for the three months was more than half of what was reported throughout 2020. Now, according to the WHO, um, among young people aged 15 to 29, suicide was the fourth leading cause of death. So, Doc, are these deaths from suicide of a different nature to those we've seen before the pandemic? And, and if so, why? Well, you know, it's hard to say. We had a suicide registry that was initiated in 2007, but lasted only a year and was seized for reasons unknown to many of us. A suicide registry actually helps us understand prevalence rates, demographics, and informs us of the interventions that are needed. When we are better informed, we know how much and what resources are required and for who and where as well. However, it, it's most probably true that the rates have risen, you know, kind of exponentially during the pandemic and the ensuing lockdowns that it's brought on as well, as the rates in 2007 were nowhere near what we are seeing being reported by the police in the first three months of this year. Yes, I think these rates are related to many other factors uh, before, you know, compared to before the pandemic. I mean, we all have a, typically a hierarchy of needs according to Maslow. And when you take away those basic needs like safety and shelter in the light of domestic violence or, you know, sustenance due to loss of income or reduced income, or even at another level, connection with near and dear ones as the pandemic and the lockdowns have caused, then these psychosocial factors become just as significant as mental disorders. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I mean, in these desperate times, there seems to be an escalation to how much a person can bear because of all these factors you've mentioned, leaving little time for therapy if that's even available to them, right? So what can we do about it just besides talking to people, asking them how they are? Is it even possible to stop more deaths to come as the COVID situation carries on? You know, I remember this disaster when I was training in the in Australia, where they uh, what do you call mobilize mental health workers, but when the mental health workers came out to the disaster zone in the beginning of uh, you know that whole recovery phase, people were frustrated and angry with them. They were not sitting there waiting to talk to people and tell about their emotions and feelings. They wanted basic needs. They wanted water. They wanted, you know, drinking water and food and a place to stay. And so they weren't prepared to go and talk about the emotions and, you know, go through all that uh, nitty gritty. That's something that comes later. Right. And I think it's important to first focus on the basic needs essential to survival. You know, it's great to have helplines and people can talk about their worries and everything else. But the physical aid is equally important. And a lot of people don't know where to access this. And sometimes it's important that that aid comes to them rather than them having to source it out through, you know, what little means that they may have. I mean, if you're in an ECMO area, how are you going to go and look for food? You know, it, it has to come to you. Um, of course, eventually, of course, mental health support is equally important. Uh, but it also means reducing the stigma and taboo, you know, accessing these and making it more accessible. So I think the pandemic has actually taught us that we have neglected an important aspect of healthcare to deal with any disaster. And that is 
actually the psychosocial component. Um, you know, so we need to not just focus only on the medical or the physical, but also on the psychosocial as well. Yeah, because I think for the most part recently, everything's just been band-aids on everything right now. Let's yeah. just fix this, fix that. But there's yeah. nothing, let's think look about it long term. There's nothing yeah. on that case. Yeah. Absolutely. So Doc, we're, we're talking about depression today and statistics of suicide, but one of the top questions that's Googled is, do I have depression? Which means that a lot of people are still unsure if they do because you know they work, they get up in the morning, they're functioning, they're having to still do, um, and they're, they aren't dealing with suicidal thoughts. Uh, so what exactly is it and how can it show up? Well, depression actually is a medical disease with set criteria required to make its diagnosis. It's different from sadness because sadness can come and go, but with depression, it's pervasive and it's continuous. It needs five symptoms from a list of nine to make a diagnosis for a minimum period of two weeks. It also has to affect daily functioning, either occupational or social or both. So the thing is, suicide is not caused only by depression alone. I mean, in most studies, it's suggested that 60% of suicide is due to depression, but the rest is due to various other factors, including you know, substance abuse, personality disorders, schizophrenia, even anxiety disorders. And of course, like we discussed earlier, psychosocial factors like financial difficulties or even relationship issues. So, I mean, what are the different ways that it can show up and deeply affect a person, even though they may seem like they're functioning? Yeah, so actually, there's several types of depression, including major depression, which is the most common form, but which is further classified as mild, moderate and severe. And so in mild major depression, patients may still be able to function to some extent. There is also dysthymia, which is a long-standing low-level depression where functioning may not be too affected. It's like the person gets ready, goes to work, does everything like a routine, but comes back and deep inside always feels low and down and no real motivation. Then there's also adjustment disorder with depressive symptoms. So even borderline personality with depression, both of which may you know, sort of entail less impact on functioning very often. Okay. So, I mean, when you're talking about these different things, I mean, there seems to be two modes of help, therapy, which can be expensive, um, or medication. Well, what else is available? Yeah. I mean, when we talk about the cost of treatment, I like to tell some of my patients, if you think about, you know, going for an appendectomy, getting your appendix removed, or treating a gastric ulcer with a gastroscope, or even doing an angioplasty, do you know how much that cost is? You might not know because it's covered by insurance. Mm, yeah. You know, but when you have to come out of your pocket to pay for illnesses that cause just as much disability as a gastric ulcer does or a heart attack does, then it makes a big difference. Yeah, so I, I think the cost uh, of treatment is actually comparatively the same, uh, you know, doing treatments for medical conditions and psychiatric conditions. And it should ideally be both the combination of psychotherapy and medication that gives the best results. But of course, you know, in Malaysia, we have other options as well, because we have public and university hospitals, which give very affordable treatment. I mean, for five ringgit, if you have a referral letter from a clinic, you can get specialist service at a psychiatric service 
and even psychotherapy as well. Wow, that's that's remarkable. I, I wasn't aware if I bring it. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, um, and that and, that sorry that includes medication as well. Wow. Yeah. And and you know when you're talking about sort of the, the the combination being the best and most effective, does that mean at some stage that you know you can be weaned off both those things? I mean, is there a possibility? Yeah. So I recently wrote a handbook on recovery. And I think we all forget that, you know, just like every other illness, there is a recovery to an illness. And in recovery, we can then slowly wean off the things that we had to take to, in addition to help our, you know, in our process of recovery. So, yeah, in my belief, I think everyone can wean off treatment and therapy, depending on, you know, the, the level of the condition and, you know, how long they've been suffering with that condition. Uh, okay, Doc, this one um, talks about mental disorders and diseases. Uh, at 28 years old, Selena Gomez has spent a lot of time in the spotlight. The award-winning singer ha has never shied away from speaking about mental health and has spoken about her bipolar disorder diagnosis and her experience with dialectical behavior therapy or DBT. So Doc, what exactly is DBT and how different is it to other forms of cognitive behavioral therapies? Well, actually DBT is a form of cognitive behavior therapy. Its main objectives are to educate people on to live in the here and now. And it's actually based on some of the philosophies of uh, Buddhism, Zen Buddhism. And, you know, eventually trying to not let their past influence their emotions and behavior. It also includes building healthy stress coping mechanisms, managing emotions and improving interpersonal connections. In other words, it actually helps one to identify and change negative thinking patterns and pushes for more positive behavioral changes. DBT was created to help people who were suicidal or had a borderline personality disorder. Uh, it has, however, now been adapted for many other mental health issues. Um, so yeah, including bipolar affective disorder. Uh, of course, Selena Gomez in that article emphasizes that she's on both medication and therapy, just like what we discussed earlier, because the mm. best results include the combination. Right. So how does um, DBT actually work then? Yeah, so, I mean, basically in most uh, mental health conditions, there can be a large focus on past traumas. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and past traumas can then influence the individual currently. Uh, in terms of, you know, how they feel, think and behave. But in DBT, it is changing that narrative to today is your new past. Today right. is going to be your history in a year from now, or it's going to be your history in 10 years from now. So what you do and, you know, emphasize on today is going to be, you know, in your new you and mm. what you can fall back on. So, yeah, so that's, that's what the focus largely is on and it has nothing to do with dialects dialects no no was it wasn't called dialectic i'm just trying to figure out the name right here so okay yeah so it's 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 trying to give different options dialectical in the sense that you know there's an alternative view uh, right. to you know how you're processing things in your mind right. I like it, the sound of it also because it's actually sort of a factual. You can't dispute the fact that today is your future of tomorrow. And so therefore it allows you to sort of 
think differently. I like that. Okay, at what point would you recommend someone to have DBT then in the early stages of some mental conditions? Or does it help if someone's had a long history of illness? Well, I would think it's best to start the earliest. Um, The challenge, sadly, in Malaysia is finding people trained in DBT. Uh, First and foremost, we actually don't have enough clinical psychologists. And then finding one trained in DBT can be a challenge. There are not that many psychiatrists trained in psychotherapy, uh, but you know, clinical psychologists are the mainstay of this treatment and therapy, but finding them is not easy. Uh, personally though, I've had patients who after years of an illness finally agreed to try DBT. And after referring them, they felt that they should have accessed it even earlier. They actually did feel you know, the benefits as well. So. I don't think there's any hard and fast rule on, you know, when you actually recommend as long as it's available and they are keen to try it. I think it's, you know, it'd definitely be beneficial. So doc, let's talk about something that JD hardly ever seems to be, but I always am. And that's hungry, right? <laughs> Why do some people hardly ever feel hungry? You know, appetite refers to how much or how often a person feels like eating. It's not mm. always consistent with the amount of food or nutrients that a person really needs. Whilst loss of appetite is usually associated with something physical, a person's mental and emotional health can also affect appetite. Um, so doc, how does someone's mental state affect a physical sensation like hunger cause you know a, a loss of appetite and does it get worse with age well actually loss of appetite can be both physical or psychological most often it's actually temporary it's due to things like you know infection or digestive issues i mean you have a common flu you'll have you know change in appetite as well mm. or it could be due to mental disorders in which case you know appetite typically will come back when the person has recovered But some people may also lose their appetite as a symptom of a long-term medical condition, like the late stages of a serious illness like cancer. And this is sometimes called cachexia. Um, The medical term for complete loss of appetite over a more extended period is actually anorexia. And this is different to eating disorder anorexia, which is more of a mental health issue. So basically, a person's mental health can also affect appetite. For example, some people may lose their appetite when they feel stressed. Uh, At times, it can be the opposite, as some use high-calorie foods to comfort their emotions. Uh, Depression is commonly associated with loss of appetite and weight loss, and that's also seen in schizophrenia. And as I mentioned, in eating disorders as well. You see, the thing is, the limbic lobe, which is where most of the neurobiological changes occur in mental disorders, is also the seat of our hunger and satiety centers, you know, that decide our appetite. So when one neurochemical and circulatory system is affected, it will influence the others. Okay. So why is it or how is it that some people, you know, lose appetite whilst others sort of gain weight or, or sort of their appetite expands exponentially due to mental strain, like, like stress, for example? Mm. Well, in the short term, stress can shut down appetite uh, because the nervous system sends messages to the adrenal glands, which are just on top of your kidneys, to pump out the adrenaline hormone. You know, and the adrenaline hormone triggers the body's fight-flight response, you know, which temporarily then puts eating on hold. I mean, you're not going to eat if you're trying to run away from a snake or a... T-Rex, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he'd rather eat you, right? Right. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like flooring your accelerator and losing more petrol and then your car feels lighter, right? Right. But, 
But if the stress persists, it's a different story. So the adrenal glands then release another hormone called cortisol. And the cortisol actually increases appetite. And that might ramp up, you know, motivation in general, including the motivation to eat. So, yeah, but once the stressful episode is over, the cortisol levels should fall. Mm. But if the stress doesn't go away, or if the person's stress response gets stuck in that on position, that cortisol may stay elevated. Oh, wait, if I have like butterflies in the stomach, that's a temporary thing, right? So I can't eat because I have butterflies in the stomach. Yeah, yeah, that's that first part, that adrenaline thing. Which is why when I think I first started morning radio with my new partner, um, I, I, you know, I didn't have such a huge appetite. But then after sort of spending every day with him and having to talk to him over the weekends, you know, all I want to do is eat jam sandwiches because he's quite a stressful human being. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, JD, there you are. Jam sandwiches. <laughs> What's that got to do with jam? She's obsessed with it for some reason. I don't know what it is. You, whenever she gets stressed, she eats jam sandwiches. That's her thing. Uh, that's because you look like a strawberry or something, a raspberry. <laughs> I don't know. But Doc, <laughs> no, no, Doc, what are you saying? That's like subconsciously, I'm trying to eat JD. No. <laughs> no. But Doc, another one is does that lead to like a lot of people? I know a lot of uh, people, like, especially like uh, sportsmen. Yeah. When it comes to like really crucial moments and then they're really stressed or really nervous, they yeah. throw up. Is that also another one of the things that causes your internal? Yep, yep, like, yep, yep, yep. Really? I mean, it's actually the mind gut uh, connection. Right. So the brain is actually the same neurochemicals in the gut are also in the brain. And so if you're, if you're actually experiencing more stress and anxiety, it has an influence on your gut as well. Oh, literally, like you don't have the guts to do something. It's yeah, little... yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, jam sandwiches. And also, you know, your body is so smart and your mind so smart that when yeah. you have to run from that T Rex, they know yeah. that you can't do it with a full roast dinner in your stomach. So it's like throw up now, throw up later, throw up now, get it yeah. out of your system, then you can yeah, run. Your system and then run. Yeah. Did you watch Jurassic Park or something recently? You're obsessed with T Rex for your <laughs> We're talking d- dementia here. Um, dementia is a form of serious brain damage that impairs cognitive and brain function, which can lead to a great level of emotional disbalance and impairs daily functioning. A lot of studies have now found that there are a lot of factors, including lifestyle changes, which help mitigate one's risk of developing dementia. Um, Doc, one of the lifestyle changes mentioned here is exercise. So how does a workout um, keep dementia at bay? And are there any specific types of exercises that work better than others? There's no certain way to prevent all types of dementia um, as researchers are still trying to find out what the exact cause is. But there's good enough evidence that a healthy lifestyle can reduce the risk of developing dementia. Basically, a healthy lifestyle can prevent cardiovascular disease like stroke and heart attacks, which themselves are actually risk factors for Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia, which are the two most common types of dementia. Some risk factors are difficult to change, like, you know, the cause of, uh, you know, the age. Uh, Dementia actually increases with age. Uh, You're not going to reverse age for sure. Uh, Genes, but of course, finally, now we know it's a combination of genes and environmental factors Mm. and even levels of education. So, you know, sometimes these are unmodifiable factors. But a lack of regular physical activity can increase your risk of heart disease, 
becoming overweight or obese and even type two diabetes, which are all linked to higher risk of dementia. In fact, a recent study in the Journal of Alzheimer's disease suggests aerobic exercise is particularly helpful in slowing shrinkage in the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain that actually deals with memory. So heart healthy behaviors like exercise do lead to better vascular health and therefore better brain health. Uh, but unfortunately, it can't completely prevent or cure dementia. But, you know, it definitely is contributory to preventing and, you know, de uh, decreasing the risk of dementia. So basically what you're saying is, let's just say in my genes, I'm a DNA, I read mm. wise, I could be heading towards dementia because family has it. Yep. But if I exercise enough at a young age and I'm healthy, mm. Mm. I push it further down the road or I, I might not even get it. Yeah, yep, that's right. So in fact, the study looked at people who had already mild cognitive impairment. So some with genetic risk, some without, but they were divided into two groups, one with regular aerobic exercise, the other without. And they found the group that had regular aerobic exercise actually had improved scores on their cognitions, you know, and, you know, long-term had less risk of worsening to dementia because MCI or mild cognitive impairment is actually uh, the precursor to dementia, you know. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what other mental benefits are there to exercise then? Oh, this is a whole textbook, actually. Right. Uh, uh, let's leave it at that then. <laughs> generally, roughly, yeah. Yeah, no, well, actually, exercise improves mental health by, you know, reducing anxiety, depression, negative moods, and also improving self-esteem and cognitive function. And uh, the improvements in the mood are perhaps caused by, you know, the exercise-induced increase in blood circulation to the brain. Mm. Uh, and of course, the... Uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Stimulation of the reward pathway. But, you know, the other things is it actually helps with, you know, as, as an aid for distraction, which is really important for anxiety. And then it helps build self-efficacy. You, you set goals and you, you know, you achieve them. You're, you're building your self-esteem. And, you know, when you do exercise with others, it improves social interaction. All of these are also helpful for mental health, better mental health. All right, so break out a Jane Fonda video, man. Yeah, I have a, I have a friend in the UK who goes running on purpose. Uh, she has really uh, terrible anxiety yeah. um, and she absolutely hates running. It's like the worst thing ever for her. It's mm. just horrible, but be she focuses on how much she hates it. And that yeah. actually helps her anxiety. So it's very odd, but she's worked out this thing with her therapist where mm. she's, she does the thing that she loathes the most. And because yeah. it's so loathsome, um, being able to direct her focus on, on, on sort of like taking a look at why that's so horrible yeah. actually helps her from the anxiety that she's feeling. The anxiety that she's getting. Amazing. <laughs> yeah.